Book Two, Sections Eighteen through Twenty of King Cole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. King Cole by Upton Sinclair. Book Two, The Serfs of King Cole, Section Eighteen. Morning came, and the mine whistle blew, and Hal stood at the window again. This time he noticed that some of the miners on their way to work had little strips of paper in their hands, which strips they waved conspicuously for him to see. Old Mike Sicoria came along, having a whole bunch of strips in his hands, which he was distributing to all who would take them. Doubtless he had been warned to proceed secretly, but the excitement of the occasion had been too much for him. He capered about like a young spring lamb, and waved the strips at Hal in plain sight of all the world. Such indiscreet behavior met the return it invited. As Hal watched, he saw a stocky figure come striding round the corner, confronting the startled old Slovak. It was Bud Adams, the mine guard, and his hard fists were clenched, and his whole body gathered for a blow. Mike saw him, and was as if suddenly struck with paralysis. His toil-bent shoulders sunk together, and his hands fell to his sides, his fingers opening, and his precious strips of paper fluttering to the ground. Mike stared at Bud like a fascinated rabbit, making no move to protect himself. Hal clutched the bars, with an impulse to leap to his friend's defense. But the expected blow did not fall. The mine-guard contented himself with glaring ferociously, and giving an order to the old man. Mike stooped and picked up the papers, the process taking him some time, as he was unable or unwilling to take his eyes off the mine-guards. When he got them all in his hands, there came another order, and he gave them up to Bud. After which he fell back a step, and the other followed, his fists still clenched, and a blow seeming about to leap from him every moment. Mike receded another step, and then another, so the two of them backed out of sight around the corner. Men who had been witnesses of this little drama turned and slunk off, and Hal was given no clue as to its outcome. A couple of hours afterwards Hal's jailer came up, this time without any bread and water. He opened the door and commanded the prisoner to come along. Hal went downstairs and entered Jeff Cotton's office. The camp marshal sat at his desk with a cigar between his teeth. He was writing, and he went on writing until the jailer had gone out and closed the door. Then he turned his revolving chair and crossed his legs, leaning back and looking at the young miner in his dirty blue overalls, his hair tousled, and his face pale from his period of confinement. The camp marshal's aristocratic face wore a smile. "'Well, young fellow,' said he, "'you've been having a lot of fun in this camp.' "'Pretty fair, thank you,' answered Hal. "'Beat us out all along the line, hey?' Then, after a pause, "'Now, tell me, what do you think you're going to get out of it?' "'That's what Alec Stone asked me.' replied Hal. I don't think it would do much good to explain. I doubt if you believe in altruism any more than Stone does. The camp-marshal took his cigar from his mouth and flicked off the ashes. His face became serious, and there was a silence while he studied Hal. 
"'You a union organizer?' he asked at last. "'No,' said Hal. "'You're an educated man. You're no laborer, that I know. Who's paying you?' "'There you are. You don't believe in altruism.' The other blew a ring of smoke across the room. "'Just want to put the company in the hole, hey? Some kind of agitator?' I am a miner who wants to be a check weighman. Socialist? That depends upon developments here. Well, said the marshal, you're an intelligent chap, that I can see. So I'll lay my hand on the table and you can study it. You're not going to serve as check weighman in North Valley nor any other place that the GFC has anything to do with nor are you going to have the satisfaction of putting the company in a hole. We're not even going to beat you up and make a martyr of you. I was tempted to do that the other night, but I changed my mind. You might change the bruises on my arm, suggested Hal in a pleasant voice. We're going to offer you the choice of two things, continued the marshal, without heeding this mild sarcasm. Either you will sign a paper admitting that you took the twenty-five dollars from Alex Stone, in which case we will fire you and call it square, or else we will prove that you took it, in which case we will send you to the pen for five or ten years. Do you get that? Now, when Hal had applied for the job of check weighman, he had been expecting to be thrown out of the camp, and had intended to go, counting his education complete. But here, as he sat and gazed into the marshal's menacing eyes, he decided suddenly that he did not want to leave North Valley. He wanted to stay and take the measure of this gigantic burglar, the General Fuel Company. "'That's a serious threat, Mr. Cotton,' he remarked. "'Do you often do things like that?' "'We do them when we have to,' was the reply." "'Well, it's a novel proposition. Tell me more about it. What will the charge be?' "'I'm not sure about that. We'll put it up to our lawyers. Maybe they'll call it conspiracy, maybe blackmail. They'll make it whatever carries a long enough sentence.' "'And before I enter my plea, would you mind letting me see the letter I'm supposed to have written?' "'Oh, you've heard about the letter, have you?' said the camp marshal lifting his eyebrows in mild surprise. He took from his desk a sheet of paper and handed it to Hal, who read, "'Dear Mr. Stone, you don't need to worry about the check-way man. Pay me twenty-five dollars, and I will fix it right. Yours true, Joe Smith.'" Having taken in the words of the letter, Hal examined the paper, and perceived that his enemies had taken the trouble not merely to forge a letter in his name, but to have it photographed, to have a cut made of the photograph, and to have it printed. Beyond doubt they had distributed it broadcast in the camp. And all this in a few hours. It was as Olson had said, a regular system to keep the men bedeviled. End of section 18 Section 19 Hal took a minute or so to ponder the situation. "'Mr. Cotton,' he said, at last, "'I know how to spell better than that.' 
Also, my handwriting is a bit more fluent. There was a trace of a smile about the marshal's cruel lips. I know, he replied. I've not failed to compare them. You have a good secret service department, said Hal. Before you get through, young fellow, you'll discover that our legal department is equally efficient. Well, said Hal, they'll need to be, for I don't see how you can get round the fact that I'm a check weighman, chosen according to the law, and with a group of the men behind me. If that's what you're counting on, retorted Cotton, you may as well forget it. You've got no group any more. Oh, you've got rid of them? We've got rid of the ringleaders. Of whom? That old billy goat Sicoria, for one. You've shipped him? We have. I saw the beginning of that. Where have you sent him? That, smiled the marshal, is a job for your Secret Service Department. And who else? John Edstrom has gone down to bury his wife. It's not the first time that doe-faced old preacher has made trouble for us, but it'll be the last. You'll find him in Pedro, probably in the poorhouse. No, responded Hal quickly, and there came just a touch of elation in his voice. He won't have to go to the poorhouse at once. You see, I've just sent twenty-five dollars to him. The camp marshal frowned. Really? Then, after a pause, "'You did have that money on you. I thought that lousy Greek had got away with it.' "'No, your knave was honest, but so was I. I knew Edstrom had been getting short weight for years, so he was the one person with any right to the money.' This story was untrue, of course. The money was still buried in Edstrom's cabin. But Hal meant for the old miner to have it in the end— and meantime he wanted to throw Cotton off the track. "'A clever trick, young man,' said the marshal. "'But you'll repent it before you're through. It only makes me more determined to put you where you can't do us any harm.' "'You mean in the pen? You understand, of course, it will mean a jury trial. You can get a jury to do what you want?' "'They tell me you've been taking an interest in politics in Pedro County.' Haven't you looked into our jury system? No, I haven't got that far. The marshal began blowing rings of smoke again. Well, there are some three hundred men on our jury list, and we know them all. You'll find yourself facing a box with Jake Pedrovich as foreman, three company clerks, two of Alf Raymond's saloon keepers, a ranch man with a mortgage held by the company bank, and five Mexicans who have no idea what it's all about, but would stick a knife into your back for a drink of whiskey. The district attorney is a politician who favors the miners in his speeches and favors us in his acts, while Judge Denton of the district court is the law partner of Vagelman, our chief counsel. Do you get all that? Yes, said Hal. I've heard of the Empire of Raymond. I'm interested to see the machinery. You're quite open about it. Well, replied the marshal, I want you to know what you're up against. We didn't start this fight, and we're perfectly willing to end it without trouble. All we ask is that you make amends for the mischief you've done us. By making amends, you mean I'm to disgrace myself, to tell the men I'm a traitor? 
"'Precisely,' said the marshal. "'I think I'll have a seat while I consider the matter,' said Hal, and he took a chair and stretched out his legs and made himself elaborately comfortable. "'That bench upstairs is frightfully hard,' said he, and smiled mockingly upon the camp marshal. End of section 19 Section 20 When this conversation was continued, it was upon a new and unexpected line. "'Cotton,' remarked the prisoner, "'I perceive that you are a man of education. It occurs to me that once upon a time you must have been what the world calls a gentleman.' The blood started into the camp marshal's face. "'You go to hell,' said he. "'I did not intend to ask questions,' continued Hal. "'I can well understand that you mightn't care to answer them. "'My point is that, being an ex-gentleman, "'you may appreciate certain aspects of this case "'which would be beyond the understanding of a nigger-driver like Stone "'or an efficiency expert like Cartwright.' One gentleman can recognize another, even in a miner's costume. Isn't that so? Hal paused for an answer, and the marshal gave him a wary look. I suppose so, he said. Well, to begin with, one gentleman does not smoke without inviting another to join him. The man gave another look. Hal thought he was going to consign him to Hades once more, but instead he took a cigar from his vest-pocket and held it out. "'No, thank you,' said Hal quietly. "'I do not smoke, but I like to be invited.' There was a pause while the two men measured each other. "'Now, Cotton,' began the prisoner, "'you pictured the scene at my trial. "'Let me carry on the story for you. "'You have your case all framed up, your hand-picked jury in the box, and your hand-picked judge on the bench, your hand-picked prosecuting attorney putting through the job, you are ready to send your victim to prison, for an example to the rest of your employees. But suppose that, at the climax of the proceedings, you should make the discovery that your victim is a person who cannot be sent to prison. "'Cannot be sent to prison,' repeated the other. His tone was thoughtful. "'You'll have to explain.' "'Surely not to a man of your intelligence. Don't you know, Cotton, there are people who cannot be sent to prison?' The camp-marshal smoked his cigar for a bit. "'There are some in this county,' said he, "'but I thought I knew them all.' "'Well,' said Hal, "'has it never occurred to you that there might be some in this state?' There followed a long silence. The two men were gazing into each other's eyes, and the more they gazed, the more plainly Hal read uncertainty in the face of the marshal. "'Think how embarrassing it would be,' he continued. "'You have your drama all staged, as you did the night before last, only on a larger stage, before a more important audience.' And at the denouement you find that, instead of vindicating yourself before the workers in North Valley, you have convicted yourself before the public of the state. You have shown the whole community that you are lawbreakers. 
Worse than that, you have shown that you are jackasses. This time the camp marshal gazed so long that his cigar went out. And meantime Hal was lounging in his chair, smiling at him strangely. It was as if a transformation was taking place before the marshal's eyes. The miners' jumpers fell away from Hal's figure, and there was a suit of evening clothes in their place. "'Who the devil are you?' cried the man. "'Well, now,' laughed Hal, "'you boast of the efficiency of your secret service department. Put them at work upon this problem. A young man, aged twenty-one, height five feet ten inches, weight one hundred and fifty-two pounds, eyes brown, hair chestnut and rather wavy, manner genial, a favorite with the ladies, at least that's what the society notes say, missing since early in June, supposed to be hunting mountain goats in Mexico. As you know, Cotton, there's only one city in the state that has any society, and in that city there are only twenty-five or thirty families that count. For a Secret Service Department like that of the GFC, that is really too easy. Again there was a silence, until Hal broke it. Your distress is a tribute to your insight. The company is lucky in the fact that one of its camp marshals happens to be an ex-gentleman. Again the other flushed. Well, by God, he said, half to himself, and then, making a last effort to hold his bluff, you're kidding me. Kidding, as you call it, is one of the favorite occupations of society, Cotton. A good part of our intercourse consists of it, at least among the younger set. Suddenly the marshal rose. Say, he demanded, would you mind going back upstairs for a few minutes? Hal could not restrain his laughter at this. I should mind it very much, he said. I have been on a bread-and-water diet for thirty-six hours, and I should like very much to get out and have a breath of fresh air. But, said the other lamely, I've got to send you up there. That's another matter, replied Hal. If you send me, I'll go, but it's your lookout. You've kept me here without legal authority, with no charge against me, and without giving me an opportunity to seek counsel. Unless I'm very much mistaken, you are liable criminally for that, and the company is liable civilly. That is your own affair, of course. I only want to make clear my position. When you ask me would I mind stepping upstairs, I answer that I would mind very much indeed. The camp marshal stood for a bit, chewing nervously on his extinct cigar. Then he went to the door. "'Hey, Gus!' he called. Hal's jailer appeared, and Cotton whispered to him, and he went away again. "'I'm telling him to get you some food, and you can sit and eat it here. Will that suit you better?' "'It depends,' said Hal, making the most of the situation. "'Are you inviting me as your prisoner, or as your guest?' "'Oh, come off,' said the other. "'But I have to know my legal status.' It will be of importance to my lawyers. Be my guest, said the camp marshal. But when a guest has eaten, he is free to go out if he wishes to. I will let you know about that before you get through. Well, be quick. I'm a rapid eater. You'll promise you won't go away before that? 
"'If I do,' was Hal's laughing reply, "'it will be only to my place of business. "'You can look for me at the tipple, Cotton.'" End of section 20